The net rankings, quite simply, are wrong. Gonzaga has a better resume and should have been the number one seed in the WCC tournament. Hear why coming up right here, Locked On Zags podcast. You are Locked On Zags, your daily podcast on the Gonzaga Bulldogs. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What is going on, y'all? Welcome to the Locked On Zags podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. I'm your host and longtime Gonzaga podcaster, Andy Patton, here to give you daily reports through another season of Gonzaga Hoops. Today is Mailbag Monday. This is a reminder for those of you who have not participated in Mailbag Monday before. You can do so by reaching out to me on Twitter at Andy Patton CBB whenever you are thinking of a question. You can also respond to a tweet. I typically post Sunday morning soliciting questions. You can respond to that. Get your questions into the show as well. You can also email me, andypatton 13 at gmail.com to get your questions answered that way. Tons of fantastic stuff today coming on the heels of Gonzaga's massive win over St. Mary's on Saturday night in Spokane. College game day in the house. Sean Farnham doing his thing crowd surfing through the crowd at the kennel it was a fantastic event zags take a share of the wcc title and the wcc tournament determined by net rankings and ryan at ryan w herzag on twitter he's got a question and he says net makes zero sense gu has a higher win percentage in quad one quad two and quad three a tougher schedule and no quad four losses how is saint mary's seven and gonzaga nine i understand the formula just don't think it does what the ncaa intended telling that the brackets don't follow net so why does the wcc use it yeah those are great questions ryan I wish I had a better answer for you on the final part. I do not know. I attempted to get an answer there. If anybody does have an answer uh, and kind of can, can, can clue me in there, I would appreciate that. But yeah, looking at the resume side by side, it's pretty difficult to see why St. Mary's is ranked higher. No disrespect to the Gales. They have a 24 and six overall record. They're two and two in quad one. That is not bad by any stretch of the imagination. Six and two in quad two. That is excellent. That makes them eight and four combined between quad one and quad two. Meanwhile, they are 17 and two when you combine quad three and quad four. However, Gonzaga is just better in every facet, in every single one of them. The Zags have a 24 and five record. They are almost certainly going to be 25 and five after they play Chicago State on Wednesday. They are five and four in quad one. So to reiterate, St. Mary's is two and two, Gonzaga's five and four. Is Gonzaga being punished for playing more than double as many quad one games? Yes, they have two more quad one losses, but they have three more quad one wins. They have a better record. They're also five and two in quad two, excuse me, five and oh, in quad two games, whereas St. Mary's is six and two. So if you combine quad one and quad two, St. Mary's eight and four, Gonzaga 10 and four. There's not an argument there. 10 and four is better than eight and four. <laughs> There's no other way to possibly look at that. You look at quad three, quad four, again, St. Mary's 17 and two, Gonzaga's 14 and one. There's just not a compelling argument for St. Mary's using the formula or using the, the stuff that, that net prioritizes using what net does to calculate their formula gonzaga should have a better resume and yet they don't i want to be clear i don't think that the one and the two seeding in the wcc tournament matters all that much i understand that as their third 
decision maker behind overall record, which is, of course, number one. And if there is a tie, it depends on who you lost to. In this case, because Gonzaga and St. Mary's both lost to LMU as their only other loss in the conference, it then fell to net ranking. So it is not like the WCC religiously follows net rankings, that it's this big, important, monumental part of how they determine seeding. It just happens to be a lower down the list tiebreaker that they use, which I think is is important to note, but it is unfortunate that it came into play in a situation where I'm not sure the net got this right. I think it's great that both these are top 10 teams. I think it's great that, that St. Mary's is getting this kind of recognition nationally. I think they deserve it but I don't think that they have a better resume than Gonzaga. I think what happened is Randy Bennett and the Gales put together a really, really good competitive non-conference schedule that didn't have as many high-end teams. I'm not blaming Bennett for that. I doubt Alabama and Baylor and Kentucky and those teams wanted to play him. I doubt they wanted to play him. So he went out and got really good teams like Oral Roberts. He got good teams like Houston uh, and, and played those teams well, beat Oral Roberts, almost beat Houston and put together the absolute best resume that he was capable of putting together within the parameters of, of teams willing to schedule him. And that deserves a ton of praise. Gonzaga's is still better. And they should have been higher in the net rankings, and they should have got the number one seed in the WCC tournament. Again, I don't think it's going to matter. I think your championship game on Tuesday is going to be Zags-Gales, and I think it's going to be awesome. But I'm not sure the net got this right. Next question here comes from Jeff via Gmail. Jeff says, the Gonzaga press was very effective in the first half against St. Mary's. It's really too bad they did not press like that against teams like Purdue. What do you think made the Gonzaga press so effective in the first half? Well, I think it was the element of surprise. I don't think Randy Bennett and the Gales were expecting it. I think the combination of pressure, the combination of a very, very loud, boisterous, energetic, enthusiastic crowd, a dynamic road environment, I think it got to them. Julian Strother did awesome in this press. He did not have a great offensive game, but he was critical in playing that one spot in the 1-2-2 press, forcing St. Mary's guards, Logan Johnson and Aiden Mahaney, to basically pinball the ball back and forth to each other until one of them crossed half court. Bam, they hit him with the press. Malachi Smith, Anton Watson, whoever it was, kind of playing back a little bit, was really good at reacting to, to passes, getting out, getting their hands on some of those balls and getting out in transition that way. Uh, as for playing it against Purdue, I, I think there's – I don't know that it would have worked. I think that just saying, oh, it worked in this game, so Gonzaga should have done it a bunch more times is not accurate. I think part of the reason it worked in this game was because of the element of surprise. If they had ran this press against Purdue, it might not have worked here against St. Mary's. Next question here comes from Christian via Gmail. Christian says, the adjustments that coaching staff and players made were highly effective, especially on defense. Could you break down the significant adjustments and how they worked? Obviously, the three-quarter court press, breaking up the rhythm and not letting the Gales get on the offensive flow. Yeah, the press was the key. Like I said, Strother had a... a not very good offensive game, and he was 2 of 10 from the field, something like that. He still had 11 points because he did really well from the free throw line. But his impact in this game was on the defensive end of the floor. Uh, forcing those passes, uh, getting guys, getting Mahaney and Johnson to basically catch the ball in the spot that Gonzaga wanted them to do. All a press is is trying to get guys into that corner right past half court where you can't go behind you, you can't go to the left of you because there's out of bounds. It basically makes there be four defenders, the four corners. You have two defenders pressing a guy. You have two defenders in the baseline or in the half court line and the sideline, and it makes it a lot more difficult. And then if you have guys roaming up the way that Smith and Watson were doing and kind of taking away some of those passing lanes, you can get a lot of turnovers that way. Uh, I think the biggest thing for, for me in this game and the reason that I was happy to see Mark Few continue to use the press, St. Mary's is not a team that's going to take advantage of it. 
other teams, I'll use Purdue as an example because they came up in the last question, they probably would attempt to break a press and immediately go towards the basket. If I was Purdue and I faced that press, as soon as I got close enough, I would just throw the ball as high as in the air as I possibly could to Zach Eady, who's going to have a defender in front of him, and then Zach Eady turns around and scores. You do that three, four times in a row, suddenly you can't press anymore because they're scoring points. They're scoring two points every single possession in the first 10 or 15 seconds. St. Mary's didn't do that. I think if they had, and I said this on Sunday's podcast as well, I think if St. Mary's had gone straight to the basket, the few, the, the couple times that they did break the press pretty quickly, as soon as that happened, they should have gone straight to the hoop. Straight to the hoop. You got three on two most likely, or at the very least, even if you miss, go straight to the basket. Attack, attack, attack. And I know that's not how they're coached. I know that's not how their offense operates. And I think that's what Mark Few has taken advantage of. He knows, hey, the worst case scenario here is that we press them for eight to 10 seconds, they break it, and then they just get into their offense, and we just have to play defense for 18 seconds instead of 28 seconds. Jay Billis mentioned this on the on the broadcast a few times, and I think he's absolutely right. It's easier to press teams like this because they don't go out and beat you. They don't beat the press the way that a traditional team might beat the press. They beat the press by then still just getting into their offense. So for Gonzaga, it's like, what do we have to lose? There's no disadvantage to us attempting to run this press and continuing to do it until the very last few seconds of the game, which is what Gonzaga did. I think St. Mary's made a mistake in not trying to attack the press and getting buckets easy. And I think that that them not doing that allowed Gonzaga to stay in it for the rest of the game and continue to fluster freshman guard, Aiden Mahaney, who didn't score in the first half. And I think that that's a pretty compelling reason why. Next question here. Final one of this first segment comes from Matt at Goldbloom underscore Matt on Twitter, who says, seems the most inspired defensive efforts come from this team have come in WCC revenge games. How does few get that level of effort during March? I don't think it's an effort thing. I think it was the press was a different strategy. Uh, LMU, they just came out and beat the tar out of them. Quite honestly, they just played absolutely fantastic basketball, but I don't think that it is effort. And I don't think that that is the right word to use. Gonzaga plays a lot of good. They, they play with high levels of effort every single game. Sometimes they don't play with very good defensive communication. That has been an issue for them throughout the season. Sometimes they just don't play good defense. They don't slide their feet well. They don't react to screens well. They don't, again, they don't communicate well. Uh, sometimes it's an athleticism thing. Like there's, there's, very, there's a lot of issues with Gonzaga's defense. I'm not going to pretend that there's not. There are. But effort is not one of them. And I think saying that, Will we get this kind of effort in March? Heck yeah. But will coach make the right decisions? Will the defense do the right things? Will the offense that Gonzaga is playing be good enough to be able to make adjustments and figure out Gonzaga's weaknesses and exploit them? Those are all the questions that need to be asked, but I'm not asking about the effort. I think the effort's going to be fine. More listeners submitted questions coming up in the second segment, including discussion on the Gonzaga-St. Mary's rivalry and my Gonzaga broadcasting preferences. But first, I want to tell you all about today's sponsor, Built Bar. If you're looking for a delicious treat, but you don't want all the fat and calories, then you've got to try a Built Bar. We're a few months through the holidays, and I know my goal has been to eat a little bit healthier this year. If you're like me, where you want to eat healthier, but you don't want to compromise taste, then I've got just the thing for you. You've got to try Built Bar. With Built, healthy is actually tasty. Seriously, they are so delicious, you will not think they're good for you. They are perfect for your delayed New Year's resolutions. What makes Built Bar so good? Well, for starters, they are covered in 100% real chocolate. That's right real chocolate, and they come in unbelievable flavors like churro, peanut butter brownie, and coconut almond. I'm not sure how Built does it, but these bars taste like a candy bar while maintaining amazing macros. They have 130 calories, 4 grams of sugar, with a whopping 17 grams of protein. And now you don't need to wait around to get a box. For years, we've been talking about ordering your Built Bars at Built.com. Now you can get them at your local Walmart or Sam's Club. That's right. Head to your nearest Walmart today. Walk to the pharmacy section and grab yourself a box of Built Bars. You can pick up a four-bar box of cookies and cream, double chocolate, 
or coconut puffs at your local Walmart or Sam's Club today. All right, segment two, still any patents, still Locked On Zags. And I want to thank all of you for making Locked On Zags your first listen of the day. For your second listen today, make sure to check out the Locked On College Basketball Podcast. It's almost March. As you're listening to this, it might be March. We are here in the greatest month of the year. Check out the Locked On College Basketball Podcast. Myself, Isaac Shade, the host of Locked On Tar Heels. It's everything you need to know about college basketball in one place. Big name experts, insiders, coaches, and players. Locked On College Basketball, available on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. All right, segment two, more listener-submitted questions here for Mailbag Monday. This one comes from Christian. Christian says, the Gale-Zags rivalry in men's hoop is truly one of the best best in college basketball. Excuse me. I know this is premature, but this would be one of the unfortunate parts of the Zags leaving the WCC. Is there a scenario where the reinvented Pac-12 or another conference includes both the Zags and St. Mary's? Perhaps a bit early to discuss, but dot, dot, dot. Yeah, no, sorry, no. The same Mary's is not going to get included in any realignment conversation, especially not Power 5 programs. Here's the deal with St. Mary's. They are a tiny, tiny school. And I know Spokane and Gonzaga relative to the schools in the Pac-12 currently and, and most of the schools in the Big 12 and, and other uh, Power 5 conferences are Gonzaga small compared to them. But St. Mary's is very small. St. Mary's is also not an accredited university. The Pac-12 hasn't even wavered one iota they have not wavered on big research institutions like they have significant academic and like size standards they're a little bit elitist in this regard it has kind of it alienated a lot of people at byu for a long time you're not going to see a lot of byu people crying about the the perceived demise of the pac-12 uh, it's happened to gonzaga gonzaga hasn't really seriously ever been in consideration for the pac-12 in part because they weren't needing to do a lot of expansion during gonzaga's run of success, but the PAC 12 is pretty elitist about the size of the school, the academic research institution kind of aspect of it. St. Mary's is not, is not close to any of that. It's not. So, so no, PAC 12 was never going to take St. Mary's. I also, I'm not sure the PAC 12 is ever going to take Gonzaga quite honestly, uh, but for the big 12, maybe, maybe they consider it, but I just, I don't see it. I, I don't think St. Mary's is on that level yet. Gonzaga had to be this level of good uh, and with other programs as well. Their baseball team is very good. Their soccer programs have ticked up. Their women's basketball program is obviously fantastic. St. Mary's doesn't have any of that. They've had a little bit of success in baseball periodically. Their women's basketball program has not been good. Like they're just, they're not the kind of program that I think is is ready for realignment right now. It's unfortunate if Gonzaga were to leave, I think they would continue this game as a non-conference game. And I think that they should. There's no compelling reason not to uh, for either side, quite honestly, but I don't see St. Mary's joining Gonzaga in a new conference unless it were like the Mountain West. And I don't think that's really on anybody's radar right now. Next question here comes from Matt at Goldbloom underscore Matt on Twitter, who says, is it just me or did the offense make a shift halfway through the year when they seemingly started emphasizing floaters coming off of side to side ball screen action? I don't remember this being a frequent look earlier in the year or years past. Yeah, this is a good observation. I think it's generally true. I think Gonzaga's offense started to emphasize getting downhill with the guards a little bit more in general. I don't know that the floater was the specific emphasis, but earlier in the year, Gonzaga really struggled because they're, they were struggling to get the ball to Drew Timmy. Like they just couldn't even get him the basketball. The guards were feeling such an overwhelming amount of pressure. Texas game was a big example of this. Michigan state game was a big example of this first two games of the year. And so once Gonzaga started to figure out how to get Drew Timmy involved, how to get him the basketball, they started to get a little bit more creative with some of the offensive stuff. And for a while, they were just really, really, really reliant on Drew Timmy to a, to a fault, quite honestly, in a lot of ways. And then we started to see them pull Drew away from the rim 
what that did is it pulled Drew's defender away from the rim. Then you can set that high screen uh, in the in the middle of the floor, the side to side ball screen actions like you're mentioning here, and get Rasir Bolton coming off of that screen and moving towards the basket. Because there's not a help defender down there, because Drew Timmy's defender is, is up farther away from the rim, it created a little bit of a lane. Usually a help defender came over, and that's where you would start to see that floater come into play. Instead of going straight into the defender, risking taking a charge or risking get, not getting a call and not finishing the basket, you just drop that little floater over the top. Gonzaga's had floaters as part of their game forever. Kevin Pangos was a mastro. My, I try to say master and maestro. Either way, you guys get the picture. Kevin Pangos was very good at floaters. Uh, and there's a lot of other players in Gonzaga's history who have been very good at them. Strother, this isn't the first year that he has been good at them. He was good at them last year as well. But I do agree with the point that Gonzaga eventually made more of a conscious effort to try to get their guards moving downhill, moving towards the rim uh, in ways that they weren't doing earlier in the year because they kind of just planted Drew Timmy down there. So yes, I agree with this analysis. And I do think that the floater in particular has been an element of Gonzaga's offense for a long time that they're really putting into play really well right now with what they've been doing with their offense and those ball screen actions. Next question, another one from Matt. He says, who is the best Zag in 94 feet with Jay Billis? It's Rui. The answer is Rui. If you have not seen the Rui Hachimura 94 feet with Jay Billis, it was in Maui, it was on the beach, uh, and Rui was responding in Japanese. There were subtitles. The subtitles were either actually putting what Rui was saying, in which case Rui was being <laughs> kind of a jerk about it. I, I think that the subtitles are probably fake, uh, or maybe they aren't. I don't know the exact situation, but it was pretty hilarious. It was a really funny conversation. Rui was saying stuff like, oh, I can't believe you woke me up for this. Like, I thought I was going to talk to Bill Walton. Who are you? Like, pretty pretty humorous stuff. So I would definitely check that one out. I thought it was hilarious. Uh, the Drew Timmy one was also fantastic. Doing it in Tent City was really, really cool. Uh, Billis kind of acknowledged on the broadcast after they showed it. He was like, Drew is like a guy who loves college, like he's a college guy. And I liked that. I liked that that was kind of the analysis because it's true. Drew loves being in college. He loves it so much and there's nothing wrong with that. I think it's awesome. And like, you could see him hamming it up with the fans and like loving all the attention. And I think that's great. Like big man on campus, man. Like we kind of, you know, the, the era of college basketball has changed so much with the amount of money being floated around in the transfer portal and, and people treating it more like free agency and professional sports. And I don't criticize most of that in the way that some people do, because I think it, more player autonomy is generally good. But they are college kids. And it's nice to see them act like college kids. Drew Timmy, really good at that. Rui was great at that as well, for the record. But I think Rui's is my favorite because it was so different and funny. But I love seeing Drew's as well. Next question here comes from Jeff. Jeff says, could Ben Gregg's mullet-like hairdo become the next great Gonzaga feature, joining legendary hair like Adam Morrison's mustache, Karnowski's beard, and Drew Timmy's stash? Yeah, I mean, I don't really think Ben Gregg is in the conversation with Adam Morrison, Shemek Karnowski, and Drew Timmy just yet. Uh, I know this is a hair conversation, but to be like an iconic hair figure in Gonzaga history, you also kind of have to be an iconic figure in Gonzaga's history. Like all three of those guys are, are icons in Gonzaga basketball history. I, Ben's not there yet. That doesn't mean he won't get there. I think in order to be like a, a known hairstyle for Gonzaga, because there's there's some missing here. Dan Dickow, Matt Bolden are two that kind of come to mind. I'm sure there's, there's many other ones as well, but you have to be like a, either a multi-year starter or like a dynamic, like really critical player in order to kind of get that mantra, get that notoriety. Ben could get there. If he starts next year, if he starts the next two years, if he, you know, beats St. Mary's because he has 25 points in the game, something like that, then I think you start to talk about it. Ben also has to keep the hairstyle, which who knows if that's going to be the case or not. I love the mullet. I think it's fun that we got that going on, but I think we're, we're a little premature in claiming it's going to be the next great Gonzaga hairstyle. 
Final question of the segment here comes from Matt. Again, Matt says, if you had to listen to one national broadcast team call every Zag game, who would it be? Give me Dave Fleming and Sean Farnham every single day of the week and twice on Sundays. I love those guys. They're fantastic. They know this program. And this isn't a knock on Billis. I thought Billis did a really nice job. I, I think a lot of the national broadcasts, especially lately, have done a much better job of covering Gonzaga games. But previously, they're not always as good. Uh, and I try not to judge broadcasts to that uh, too much for that. I think when people get really mad at national broadcasters for not knowing every single thing about Gonzaga, it's like, yeah, they, they cover 40 teams. They can't always do that. If anything, get frustrated at the decision makers who put a broadcast team to cover a game who maybe weren't fully equipped to cover that game. That's why I'm always happy when I see Dave and Sean, because they know this team. They know them backwards and forwards. And the thing I love about those two guys, they know the WCC. Like them covering a Gonzaga St. Mary's game is beautiful because they also cover St. Mary's games. Like outside of just Gonzaga, they'll cover St. Mary's at Portland. They'll cover, you know, random other WCC games. So they know this conference. They know this team. Those are the two guys that I would want. There, there are plenty of other very talented broadcasters out there that I love. But if I'm watching a game on ESPN or watching a game, yeah, yeah, watching a game on ESPN, I guess, like that's what I'm hoping for every time. It's Dave Fleming and Sean Farnham. And, Frank, and, and fortunately, that has kind of been who Gonzaga has drawn most of the time uh, in the last couple of years. All right, more listeners submitted questions, including talk about the women's WCC championship coming up right after this. All right, segment three, still patents still locked on Zags, and we're still going through Mailbag Monday here as we get closer to the final regular season game of the year for Gonzaga against Chicago State on Wednesday, and then, of course, the WCC tournament taking place next week. This next question here comes from Christian via Gmail. Christian says, how many times have the Zags won WCC titles in both men's and women's basketball? This is awesome and deserves a moment or two to celebrate and elaborate on. Yes, it's awesome. It's always awesome. It's also not rare. In fact, by my count, this is the 17th time this has happened. These two teams, these two programs dominate the WCC, absolutely dominate the WCC. BYU has been a significant player on the women's basketball side until recently. Portland has emerged as a, a fairly significant player on the WCC side, as or on the women's side, I should say, as well. Obviously, St. Mary's has been a dynamic presence on the men's side, but by and large, the WCC, from a basketball perspective, has been straight up dominated by Gonzaga. This women's team has won it many, many, many times over the last 15 years or so. Kelly Graves, when he was here, after he departed, Lisa Fortier took over. They have been a dominant presence in the WCC. So, yeah, I love celebrating it. I think winning back-to-back or winning two straight WCC championships for the men's and the women's is awesome. It's just not that rare. Next question comes from Jeff. Jeff says, in the WCC women's tourney, four-seed San Francisco and five-seed BYU are in the best position to advance and play Gonzaga on Monday. Who would you rather see the Gonzaga women play? Yeah, BYU is going to have a big crowd on hand. They always do uh, for women's games and for men's games. This is the final time that they're going to get a chance to see their team play at the Orleans Arena because they're moving to the Big 12. Big 12 tournament does not happen at the Orleans Arena, believe it or not. Uh, And so I think that they're hungry to go out of the WCC with a bang. Upsetting Gonzaga moving to the championship game would be quite a bang for the BYU women's program. USF just doesn't have as much urgency. They are a talented team, and I think that they could uh, potentially play a spoiler here in, in a sense, but... I would rather face them than BYU. Next question here comes from Christian. Christian says, can the ladies eggs make a deep tournament run? They are on their way to a 30 win season, which is an awesome accomplishment. I think the fact that they're healthy and they're getting healthier, they got both trunk twins back. uh, I think that's going to make their odds a little bit better, but they haven't shot the ball super well lately. Uh, I think they're going to be really reliant on Vani Ejim down low. 
And I think bigger teams, tougher teams, some of the teams, you know, outside of the WCC, and I know this is kind of like a parroting an argument people have used against the men's program for, for decades, but right now the WCC is pretty weak on the women's side. And so the ladies eggs haven't had a ton of competition over the last few weeks, a few months, quite honestly. And I think that there, if teams can figure out how to shut down, Vani can, can push her around a little bit, can make it harder for her to get her, her shots down around the rim, force the rest of Gonzaga's team to shoot over them. That could be a problem. Brenda Maxwell has been incredible. She's shooting over 50% from three, one of the best three-point shooters in the entire country. Uh, but they need a little bit more than that. So can they make a deep tournament run? Yeah, I think so. They're going to be a seven seed, probably maybe a six seed. So in the second round, they're going to face a two seed, three seed. And that's going to be a good team. Whoever they face is going to be a really solid team with some size, with some athleticism, with some toughness. And Gonzaga is going to have to prove that they can beat that team. Can they? Yes. Will they? Hard to say. Next question comes from Jeff. Jeff says, how awesome is that everyone on this year's Gonzaga women's team is eligible to return next year? The future is fantastic. To be quite honest, the future has been fantastic, even without that being the case. I spoke with Lisa Fortier before the season, I think in July or so, and she said, we graduated 10 in the last two years. So they're as good as they've been in any of the last couple of seasons, even after graduating 10. The, the development system, the way that they get players ready, they utilize the transfer portal in a really significant way with the Brenda Maxwell edition last year. I don't, I'm not saying it doesn't matter. Continuity matters. It absolutely does. I also don't think that the fact that everybody's eligible to return doesn't mean that everybody's going to return. In women's basketball in particular, the, you don't see the fifth year used as often. It gets used sometimes, but some of them are, are going to graduate and they're going to move on with their lives. Some of them are going to go play professionally overseas. Some of them are just going to move on and do something else. And, and so I don't think that we're not looking at a women's basketball team that's going to bring everybody back necessarily, but they're going to bring most of them back. Lisa's been very good at supplementing talent in the transfer portal. They're going to have some freshmen coming up and, and, and some girls on the team right now who, who have smaller roles who are going to kind of get into bigger roles next season. So I think they're going to be in a really good spot. But even if they lost three or four talented players from this team, I think they'd still be in a good spot because I really trust what, what 48 and the staff is doing uh, on the women's side. Final question of the show here comes from Christian via Gmail. Christian says, I saw on Anton Watson's Instagram that he is part of the inaugural NIL trading cards. I ordered a pack. This is yet another cool facet of NIL that is great for the athletes and fans. What are some other ones? What are some fun or outside the box NIL possibilities? Yeah, I bought these about a month ago. I got them in the mail recently. I got a Malachi Smith autograph. I was going to show you guys on YouTube, but it's not within reach. Uh, but regardless, very, very cool thing. Uh, it's not just Anton Watson. I think everybody on the team posted or is posting on on instagram about this everybody's getting money out of it uh the proceeds are going towards them i don't know exactly how quite honestly but i know that they are um i'll post a link to this on the show notes as well if you guys haven't seen it yet uh, it's a fantastic way to support the team get some trading cards get an autograph you don't know who it's going to be that's kind of fun you might pull drew timmy you might pull hunter salas you might pull malachi smith all sorts of good options um, for this team in terms of other options yeah we're seeing all of it christian named a few bobblehead dolls jerseys cookbooks all of it exists so not necessarily for Gonzaga, but for NIL, yes, it's all out there. It's all out there. There's going to be more. We're going to see all sorts of good stuff. I think it's going to be really, really fun. I'm curious if we will start to see more bobbleheads continue to crop up. That's a favorite of mine. I think that's really fun. Bobbleheads tend to be giveaways. So I don't know how that works from an NIL perspective. Like <laughs> you can't make money if you're just giving away a product. So we'll have to see how if they start selling them at the bookstore, whatever they do there. there there's some stuff they still got to figure out. But I think for the most part, we're going to see all sorts of good stuff come out of NIL. We already are. Uh, we're seeing, you know, people use it for, for charity purposes, which is fantastic. We're seeing people use it to help support their families, which is also fantastic. And we're seeing it for, for fans like us to be able to get more merchandise, more cool things, autographs, uh, stuff like that. And I think that's really, really cool. 
All right, that is going to do it for me today. Plenty more coming your way this week. We'll preview the Chicago State game. We'll take a look at the first few games in the WCC tournament, all sorts of good stuff. Also, check out the other podcast, Locked On College Basketball. We are in it. It is the busiest time of the year right now, so check that out. Keep up to date on everything that's going on throughout the entire college basketball landscape. You can find it on YouTube. You can also find Locked On Zags on YouTube. Do me a favor. Go to YouTube. Find both Locked On Zags and Locked On College Basketball. Hit that subscribe button. It takes 10 seconds. It's a big help for me. You can leave us a comment. You can leave a review on iTunes. Follow me on Twitter, Andy Patton, CBB. All sorts of good stuff as we get into the best month of the year. All right. Thank you again all for listening, and go Zags.